You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Thank you, everybody. Uh, my name is Alex Thier. I'm the executive director here at ODI, uh, and we're greatly appreciative of you coming here to be with us tonight. I also want to welcome uh, the many people who signed up to watch online. Uh, it's really my great pleasure and honor to welcome our very special Thank guest you, tonight, uh, Professor Muhammad Yunus. Um, I think that a listing of his contributions to humanity are worthy of more time than we probably have. Uh, but hailed as both the father of microcredit and the social business model, uh, Professor Yunus won the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize for his work founding the Grameen Bank. Uh, but importantly, he didn't stop there. Uh, he has founded numerous groundbreaking organizations and has also illuminated how we think about people, poverty, inequality, and entrepreneurship in a series of books. His latest book, uh, which I have with me here, is A World of Three Zeros, where he tackles the issues of inequality, employment, and environment that are on the minds of every country, rich and poor alike, today. He has lived and worked tirelessly not only to popularize the idea that we could end extreme poverty in our lifetime, but actually to shed light on how we might be able to do that practically. Professor Yunus, you honor us with your presence here tonight. Um, we're delighted to have you this evening. Uh, I'm going to interview Professor Yunus for a little bit, uh, and then we're going to open up to some audience questions. Uh, we have some questions online, and I see now that I'm going to be handed the magical device uh, that will translate those questions from wherever you are in the world uh, to me. If you do want to participate uh, directly in the conversation, uh, I encourage those of you here in the audience uh, not to turn off your phones, but to silence them. Uh, please use the hashtag uh, ODIDev uh, to participate um, in the discussion, sorry, GlobalDev, uh, let me say that once again, uh, the hashtag global dev to participate in the conversation. Uh, if you're watching online, there's also a box where you can send us uh, questions. Um, and so we look forward to engaging all of you uh, in the conversation. So once again, uh, welcome Thank here you. tonight. Thank you for inviting me. So I thought we'd start the conversation actually by taking you back a little bit um, to talk about the Bangladesh that you grew up in. Uh, did it seem at the time that extreme poverty, even famine, uh, as you've written about, were simply part of the landscape, part of the inevitable experience of human existence? Well, Bangladesh uh, has been the poorest part of the world for many, many centuries. Uh, so that is something uh, we took it for granted. It's uh, diseases, hunger, it's part of our life. Uh, but when we became an independent country, uh, separating out from Pakistan uh, after a long uh, liberation war. And we thought this is the new beginning. We will have our own world. We have to fight the poverty and the diseases and all the discomforts of the people. But we ended up with the famine in the country uh, in 1974. And that was a very shocking experience coming to all this distance and having this famine. 
Uh, and I was teaching economics in one of the universities there. So that uh, shook me up, and that's the rest of the story is uh, how I try to react to that kind of thing. But talk, talk a little bit about that. Um, one of the, the interesting things about your story, I think, is that you, you had an epiphany. You saw a world that wasn't doing what it needed to do, and you had an idea about how to change it. Um, and that had to do with access to credit, particularly for women. Talk us a little bit about, about what, what actually resulted in that moment for you. Okay. What, what really led you to that? I just came back from the States where I was teaching uh, in one of the universities there. Uh, and when I heard uh, the news that Bangladesh became independent and uh, finally we came out of Pakistan framework, I got excited because during this time I was supporting Bangladesh liberation movement and we were trying to lobby the U.S. Senate and the Congress to make sure the U.S. government changes its policy towards Bangladesh. They were opposing uh, the independence of Bangladesh. Uh, those were an exciting moment for us, and immediately I decided I'm going back. So I resigned from my job, and uh, in June of uh, 2000, sorry, one, uh, 1972, I went back to Bangladesh, and I started teaching in one of the universities there. We were excitement that uh, all things will be now solved because we are independent, we can make our decisions. But instead of uh, economy doing, going up, it started falling down very quickly. And in 1974, we had the terrible famine, people dying of hunger. So when the hang this uh, famine hit, uh, suddenly I started questioning everything that I have learned in economics. Suddenly economics sounded like, uh, appeared to me like an empty subject. It has no nothing, it's a fairy tale that uh, you, it's good in, a classroom is good in textbook, but it's not good in real people's life. Uh, so I started getting a feeling of uselessness in me, that what I spent my lifetime uh, in education in, uh, as a student or as a teacher, now suddenly you see these things are uh, worthless. It has no meaning. Uh, so I was suffering through that uh, feeling of uh, uh, being useless. So one thought gradually came to me, maybe I cannot use what I've done, but I still as a human being, I can do something as a person. Why don't I go out in the village next door to the campus, which is right there, and see if I can be useful to anybody in the village, for even for a day. That would be good use of me. So I went there every day, trying to see if I can make myself of some use to somebody. And he did a lot of little things. Uh, one thing led to another. Then I started noticing and hearing about the loan shark in the loan sharking in the village, lending tiny money to poor people, and grabbing everything the person has in the name of loan. The loan conditionalities are so cruel. I couldn't believe a human being can be so ruthless in terms of uh, greed, taking money from somebody who lost everything. But they do it very easily. You see. And I feel, again, helpless that I don't know, nobody taught me how to deal with the loan sharks in the village or anywhere. So I was seeing, is there something I can do about it? One idea came, maybe I can do something. Why don't I lend the money myself? If I lend the money, people don't have to go to a loan shark, they can come to me. So the people who will come to me, they will be protected from the victimization by the loan sharks. 
because I'm trying to solve their problem. So immediately I started lending money out of my own pocket. I have the money in my pocket, so I thought this is a good way to do that. And people loved it. And I was very happy that they loved it. That means I'm doing something good to them. Uh, but it became so popular. More and more people kept coming, more and more money I gave. Uh, at one point, after several months, I started uh, thinking, well, soon I'll run out of my money. Everybody's <laughs> getting the money. Uh, what do I do then? And that started worrying me that I have to stop or I have to slow down. Uh, idea came, why don't they go to the bank? Let the bank do it because this is their job, not my job. I'm a teacher. Uh, so I went to the bank and said, why don't you do this? I'm doing this in the village next door to you. This is your office. Their office is in the campus, bank, bank's office. So I said, I'm doing this. Why don't you come with me, see what I do, and you take it over from me. He said, no, no, I can't do that. Uh, bank cannot lend money to the poor people. I said, what's wrong with that? Because they are not creditworthy. I said, what, come, what does it mean, they're not creditworthy? Meaning they will not pay back. I said, they are paying back to me. Oh, you are different, you are going there. I said, no, you can be different too. Why don't you try to be different? I said, no, no, we, this is our rule, this is our procedure. We can't do that. Then I started accusing them all kinds of things every day. I meet him every day, I see him. <laughs> and I become a nasty guy to him. I said, should you tell people that they are not creditworthy? Or people should tell you that you are not people-worthy? <laughs> so why didn't you look at that, their perspective? They said, no, whatever you say. But I can't do that. Our rules don't permit it. So I started meeting the high officials in the banking system, all the top people. And they treat me well. They give me a cup of tea to drink with them and so on. But when it comes to my proposition, I said, sorry, we can't do that. So I, I was frustrated. I have to now come close it down completely. Uh, then I thought, uh, I tried one more way. I started proposing to them, why didn't you accept me as a guarantor? I hear that you have a provision. If they cannot pay back, some, if you can find somebody as a guarantor, then you keep the loan. So I become the guarantor for all of them. I'll sign every single piece of paper. They laughed at me, no, no, it doesn't work. I said, what, what is wrong? This is your rule. I'm quoting your rule. Oh, it probably don't work. I said, let's try it. So after several months of trying, finally they agreed. So now from now on, I just sign papers and give the money to the poor people, they get it. So I was very happy. But soon they said, no, no, this is getting too big. Probably you won't be able to pay back all the money that you're giving. So we have to slow down. I said, no, we don't slow down, we move. Then I thought maybe I should create a bank completely separately because this bank will never do this because they are not, this is not in their blood. So I thought about creating a new bank. I thought, tried to talk to the central bank, tried to talk to the finance ministry, uh, some support, some opposition. And after three years of trial, finally I got the permission and set up a bank, named it Grameen Bank or Village Bank. Because one of the acquisitions that I made, banks always work in the city. They don't come to the village. People in Bangladesh live in the village. 85% of the people of Bangladesh live in the village. I said, what is the use of having bank in the city? So I said, uh, I create a bank for the people in the village. So I called it Village Bank and lending money to the poor people, particularly poor women. So this is how it began. And that bank now has over 9 million borrowers, uh, still functions very strong, very strong institution. 97% uh, of the borrowers are women out of this 9 million and we lend money to, for income generating activity. And they take the money and change their life. 
and many other things we added to this banking to make sure that they benefit as a family, continue to benefit that. So that's the story behind it, Grameen Bank. And they own the bank. So we made them the owners of the bank. So I'm not the owner or anybody else is the owner. The borrowers are the owner. This elect their representative to sit in the board. So the board, they make the decisions in the board by themselves, their rules, their procedures, and so on. So one of the things I think that's so powerful about that narrative is not just the how wrong the banking system was and the need to change it, but you also recognize something more fundamental, which is about the fact that poverty reduction is actually about empowering people to generate their own wealth as opposed to just increasing the base of charity and charitable giving. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because your narrative running through, I think, all of your work is what we would call as an American a bootstraps narrative, that you're giving people the, the ability to pick themselves up ultimately. Uh, one way I tried to describe uh, at the very early stage, I was so convinced about the power of financial services to the poor people. I started saying that credit should be taken as a human right. There are so many other human rights, right, to shelter, right to food, right to health, and so on and so forth. I say among, among all those uh, human rights, you have to add one more human right, right to credit or right to financial services. Uh, because I keep saying that all these human rights, right to food, right to shelter, and all that, uh, cannot be established until something else is established, income. Nobody's going to give you food every morning because it's your right. Nobody's going to give you health every day because it's your right. You have to have the capacity to grab it, take it, it's housing and all that. So I said, income is the central thing. And in order to create income for the poor people, they need financial services. I said that we have an uh, economy which is uh, based on money. Money begets money, that's the way it is. But you, if you don't have the First unit of money, you don't have the dollar in your hand, you can't catch a dollar. You need a dollar to catch a dollar. You can't catch it in empty hand. But nobody gives them the first dollar so that they can start catching dollar and move on with that. So this is the narrative that I always had. And then I moved it to another direction. I said, look, financial or economic uh, service, financial services like uh, uh, oxygen to people. If you, have, if you don't have oxygen in this room, we'll all uh, stop breathing. I mean, you can't breathe. If you breathe, you, it doesn't help anything. You, you become weak, you, become, you collapse because there's no oxygen in the room. I said, that's exactly what happens to the poor people because economic, uh, the financial services are not available to people. So their economic life become weak, dysfunctional, they cannot function. The, that's, that's the condition, that's the status we call as uh, poverty. I said, you connect them to that economic oxygen and suddenly they come alive, suddenly become active. But that thing is missing. The financial system doesn't work for them globally. More than half the population of the entire world are not connected with the financial system. They are left to other kind of uh, victim, uh, uh, institutions or uh, people, the loan sharks. Either it's a village loan shark or it's a city loan shark called payday lenders and all the pawn shops and all. these are the victims because they, they are outside the 
financial system. I said, why didn't you build a financial system? At that time, they said it cannot be done. When we did that, they said, look, it can be done. We did it. But still, it doesn't make uh, any difference to them. They stay where they are. So in your new book, you are um, essentially calling for, I think, as you put it, a revolution in the capitalist system. Uh, a system that you indicate, while it has produced so much global growth, an incredible amount of growth, and with that poverty reduction, uh, it has also reinforced some of the worst elements of inequality and environmental destruction. Um, and so talk a little bit about what this, this big idea, uh, which I think your, your comments just now start to speak to, which is, so the system's not working. It's not working for enough people. It's not working for them quickly enough. Uh, that's a pretty tall order. You're talking about global level change, not just changes in financial access or the banking system. Uh, the point that I'm raising in the book, that uh, we created a, financial, a whole global system of economy, uh, which is known as the capitalist system, that does a, a very strange thing. Uh, it has turned into a big sucking machine. It sucks up the wealth from the bottom and transports to the top. So the top becomes a very heavy. Uh, few people own all the wealth of the world. Rest of the population don't have anything. Uh, so I quote uh, Oxfam uh, findings. Uh, they every, every year they come up with the new findings. The last year they, their finding was eight people in the world own more wealth than the bottom 50%. Bottom 50% is about 4 billion people. So what the result is, total amount of wealth owned by just eight people in the world is equivalent to the wealth of the combined wealth of the 4 billion people. I said, this is a very funny kind of economy, that you have all the wealth in the hands of justice people that you count in the fingers. And you know the name of those people, you know how much, where they live, they have their email address for them. This, this is the situation. Uh, and this is not the end of it. Oxfam is reporting for many years now. Every year is concentrated more than what was used before. Uh, two years back they were reporting 62 people own more wealth than bottom 50%. This year, last year they reported eight people. What will they report next year? Maybe one person owns more wealth than the bottom 50%. So all the wealth is moving in that direction. Uh, if they do that, if, and another information is 99% uh, of the wealth of the world is owned by only 1% of the wealth of the world, uh, only 1% of the population of the world. So if 1% owns 99%, what does it mean? It means 99% of the population of the entire world owns only 1% of the wealth. And you said there's inequality. Uh, I don't see any inequality. Because when you compare with something huge goes up on the sky, and a tiny little thing, that is not inequality. It's a gross uh, fabrication of the real world in a distorted world that you said. Inequality is something that you have within your range, up and down a little bit. That's inequality. This is not inequality. So entire wealth is in the hand of one person or a group of few people. And the rest of it has nothing. You don't call it equal. It's a deprivation. So this is the direction the world is moving. 
and the speed of that wealth concentration is becoming faster and faster. So today, 1%, 8%, tomorrow 1%, day after, maybe 1% will be owning 75% of the wealth of the entire world, 1%. This is the direction we're moving. I said, this is not a sustainable world. This economics cannot function, cannot do. Where does it go wrong? Why did it happen this machine like this? And we're just feeling that, oh, this is okay. It's not okay because it's a ticking time bomb. It can explode any time you want. So before it explodes, we have to pay attention to it. And I draw the attention that it is built in, into the uh, capitalist system. I said, only two things, if you, two things if you address in the whole system, bulk of this problem can be addressed. This is a, the, both of them is just plain misinterpretation of a human being. They assumed a human being which is different than the real human being. They assumed a human being, the designers of the capitalist system, assumed human being is driven by self-interest, meaning these are selfish people. People are essentially selfish. That's what the world should be. So you build a system for, for fending your selfishness. So we became a system where everybody is up for them, themselves, not for the world. I said, this is, this is not the true reflection of a human being, real human being that we see. Real human being is not 100% selfish. Real human being is a mixture of selfishness and selflessness. Selflessness is totally ignored in the theory of capitalist system. So I said, why didn't you include it? Reinterpret the human being. Then many of these problems will get resolved. Once you do that, once you accept that human being has both selfish and selfless elements in them, then you have to build businesses on the basis of both. And today we have one selfishness-driven economy. The whole world is selfishness-driven economy. So you have to build selflessness-driven economy, which will address the problem of the world rather than gaining money for himself. Luckily, in our work that we have done with microcredit, we moved into that direction, created many companies along the way, which are dedicated to solving people's problems, rather than make money for anybody. And we started calling them social business and drew attention to the people. Look, all the problems we see around the world are solvable, only if you pay attention to it and design businesses to solve it. Charity cannot solve this. Charity cannot maintain that. Charity has a limitation. Charity is a wonderful idea. That's what helps the world to move up to this part. But it has a limitation. Limitation is charity money goes out, does a wonderful work, but the money come, doesn't come back. I said, what I have done in my work, I created more than 60 companies. What I have done, I took the objective of charity, put a business engine behind it. Then what it does, money goes out, does the work, and money comes back. So you use the money again. You can use the money, same money again and again. You don't have to need fresh money on that. The old money can do on again and again. So I said, this is the difference. Charity money has one life. Social business money has endless life. Objective is the same. They are doing the same thing, but this is more structured. This is more uh, something like an organism. It grows by itself. Charity money, charity doesn't create an organism. It is one short thing. You always wait for the next replenishment of the money to come. So this is what I've been doing. I said, if you do that, then the world becomes different. 
You can do both. You can do money-making business. You can do the self, uh, selfless business or the social business. And certainly you start doing something to the wealth concentration because the more the, the social business grow bigger and bigger, less will be the wealth concentration because in, there is no contribution of wealth concentration through the social business because I'm not taking any profit out of it. It stays with the world. And this is an engine which becomes bigger and bigger. Social business starts solving problems. So that way you reduce that. This is one misinterpretation I'm trying to bring to the notice of people so that everybody has an option. Today, that option doesn't exist. It's nobody's forcing you to do social business. Simply say there is an option. You can do this or this or do both because you have it inside of you. So why don't you create both kind of businesses? If you include that, there's a transformation. Another one, misinterpretation of a uh, human being in the theory, capitalist theory. What is the role in the world every human being will do? The role is assigned by the capitalist system. You have to work for somebody else, job. That's the only destiny everybody has. They have to find a job and work for somebody. I said, that doesn't fit into the real human being. Real human being, the way I see it, they are entrepreneurs. But you made them to work for somebody. I said, in history, when we are coming to this all long history, we are never working for anybody. We are independent people. Where, when we were in the caves, we are not sending job applications to anybody. We just got things done by ourselves. There is no phone call from cave number five to cave number 10, do you have a job for me? We did it own. We struggled with the life, we struggled with the nature and survived. And that's what we are. That's the thing we bring in our DNA. Being independent, being creative, being um, problem solver. So suddenly we are told to work for somebody else. I said, that's a misdirection of people. And in the process, what we have done, we have sacrificed our creativity. Job takes away your creative power because you got to fit into a slot. And the slot needs only specific kind of thing. Whether you have it, you don't have it, they will put it into you. And then you grow within that slot. You cannot get out of that slot. I said, the real human being is a continuously creative person. And that's what fits into the entrepreneurship. So I said, why don't you have entrepreneurs? Then I get the argument that, no, not everybody is born to be entrepreneur. I said, who said so? Where is the proof that not everybody is entrepreneur? So look at that, people. Uh, some are entrepreneurs, some are working. I said, that's what you told them. You remove this whole entrepreneurial ability in the person, in your education system, in the upbringing in the family, always saying, go to the good, good school so that you get a good education, so that you get a good job in a good company. This is the message everybody's giving you. You have to have a job. And the politicians are always promising, we'll create jobs for you, et cetera, et cetera. I said, all these words are bombarded in your mind and you believed in that. You forgot that you're an entrepreneur. And look at what we do in microcredit. I just mentioned nine million borrowers in Grameen Bank. They take a loan, each one of them, an illiterate woman in the village, $30, $40, start a business. If millions and millions of illiterate women all over the world can take loan, become entrepreneur, Nobody taught them, nobody had a business school for them. They just started. So it's, they are the simplest form of human being, natural form of human being. They chose it and they were successful. That's what the microgrid is thriving. That's why it's so important. That's why I said oxygen you put, people become alive because alive not for a job. 
but creating their own enterprise. That's what they did. If all those millions can create their entrepreneurship, display their entrepreneurship, I'm totally convinced this is the natural thing for a human being. And how come the educated people don't do it? Because education system is very good in eliminating that entity that existing that you have the capacity there so that you never remember that you use you are an entrepreneur that's why they just look for a job mm. otherwise if you give them the option as from the beginning as a child in your family or as a school as a student if everybody's saying you have two options you can be a job seeker or you can be a job creator an entrepreneur prepare yourself what you want to be they will make a choice and that will be the real choice and you you prepare them both ways so that they know which one they have to choose, and suddenly it will happen. Let me uh, let me let me just follow up a little bit with both of those ideas. Um, you talk a lot about what motivates people, um, and you know we we're we're blessed with uh, the type of audience who who may be motivated by by higher purposes. Um, but can you talk a little bit about why you believe that the model of social business is not only something that uh, will appeal to the types of people who show up on a cold winter night at, at ODI, um, but actually a lot of people who are thinking about what they want out of life uh, that are really going to be required to take this idea to the type of scale that you're talking about that would actually have a transformative impact. You just said it. Uh, what will make them happy to do something? Uh, what is the purpose that they see in the world? You see, I'll look at the education system again. Education system we designed throughout the world, very good in giving uh, knowledge about science, technology, literature, history, and everything. But they never discuss what is the purpose of your life. And this is the time to find out what is the purpose of my life. That's not a subject at all discussed, but that is the most essential part of it. I would say that every child as they grow up, this is the subject, they will come back again and again. What is the purpose of my life? What is it that I'm going to the rest of my life? I'll be here for so many years, but it's a very short period. Within this, I have to figure it out and make it happen. So that is the missing part. Because, why don't they discuss this? Because they assume you will be working for somebody. What is the purpose there? So you see human destiny is taking a job. I said, that is the silliest thing any human being can hear. The destiny of a human being is to work for somebody else. Human being is such a big entity. It's not designed for just ending the life of serving somebody, some company, and that's the end of the life. I said, that's something you have to decide yourself among many options, and the job will be another option, one more option. But there are many other options, and you decide what you want to be. If I want to say, I would create, when I grow up, as I grow up, I want to change this world. Maybe this is my destiny. This is what I would like to do. Then I'll be thinking, how do we do that? What are the tools I have in my toolbox to make it happen? Or I want to make lots of money. Okay, that's your purpose. You want to love lots of money. And you explain what you do with that money that after you earn them. You eat them. You sit on the stacks of the money. What, what is it that you do? Purpose has to mean something that you did. And you people will remember you that you've done this something important for your life. So that is the missing part of it. So when we come to the question, we put in the two things, selflessness and uh, selfishness. Uh, you'll be, what, what do I do with my selfless part of it? So I can create a business to solve problems. Which problem should I solve? This will be a natural question. If I want to create a business to solve problems, 
which is the problem? What are the problems anyway? So I'll get involved with the problems. I have a list of problems. I'll rank them. Which one that I see, I can do something about. And then come with the design of a business idea. How do I design a business to make it happen, to solve it, so that it, it runs by itself? I find the investment to make it happen, and I do that. And I said, maybe somebody says, OK, I'll do that. My uh, social business will be to take five welfare people out of welfare. This will be my social business. OK, sounds good, but how do you do that? Well, I thought of creating a business which will employ five welfare people. And they will be out of welfare because this is exciting business, business they will be running. They're happy about it. This fits into their talent and their creative power. And they're there. And they don't need any welfare because they earn more in, uh, in this business than what welfare can give them. So happily, they get moved out. And I, cre I created the business not to make money out of these people. I created the money so that I created this business so that they can be happy and I can get my money back. And after that, I own the company, but I don't need any profit. Profit is, uh, is plowed back into it. And now that it's plowed back into it, I can hire another person of the welfare. There's a lining up. They say, would you take me? I said, no, sorry, I don't have an investment. Okay, now I have investment. Please come up. So I created a social business like that. Somebody created a social business they were showing me in New York City. I was, I was not aware of it. She took us uh, showing that. I said, I said, wow, this is a beautiful restaurant you got. It's a big restaurant and so on. So then we were having a meal with them and so the people who have led this whole thing and creating this. Then she said, have you, discussed, uh, have you met our uh, uh, staff who are serving you? I said, yeah, I talked to one of the girls who was serving. How do you like them? I said, this beautiful, they want, wonderful service they're providing. We, all the stuff that we have in these restaurants are ex-prisoners. We wanted to make sure they don't go back to prison. We selected them, we trained them. Now we have a restaurant for them so that they run it and so on. Oh, I said, that is a social business. And we have no intention of making money out of this. All our intention is to make sure they are kept and they are happy and they don't have to commit crime to go back again. Because history in every country, not just the United States, young criminals come out of the jail after suffering for the jail sentence, and most likely, bulk of them, 75% of them, go back to prison because their association developed inside the jail comes back, and they, because they don't know where to go, it's your prisoner, so you have no job, you go back again. That's the only way. So they want to do that. It's not a rocket science to take few young prisoners out to make sure that uh, they don't have to go back to the prison. So these are the social business mm -hmm. idea. It can come thousands and one ways. People's minds are very creative. If you put your mind into it, this will happen. So one of the zeros of the three zeros, as you've talked about, is about employment or, or unemployment. Um, and this narrative um, about uh, entrepreneurship and employment comes at a moment when uh, you, you almost can't walk outside without tripping over a seminar about the future of work and the concerns about automation and machines creating so much productivity that people are not going to need to work soon. Um, so I'm, I'm curious because your narrative obviously runs almost completely counter to that one as a fear that there's not going to be jobs for anybody. Um, so talk a little bit about, I don't know if you're engaged in conversations, talk a little bit about this evolution that's happening around the world that's causing a lot of concern 
and why you actually don't think that it means the end of work, but maybe the beginning of a different type of work. So I, I was uh, explaining this uh, entrepreneurship idea that all human beings are entrepreneurs. Uh, without thinking about artificial intelligence or all the robots and so on and so forth. But that, now they coincide together. What we do in Bangladesh, the reason that we got into this, all these young people from Grameen families with education, they're out of job, they complain. Then I say, why are you lo looking for job? Job is a very old-fashioned idea. This is all gone, finished. Job is not the right idea. It's a, it's a misdirection of human beings. What is the right direction? Right direction is you tell yourself, I'm not a job seeker, I'm a job creator, and behave like a job creator. So how do you do that? You become an entrepreneur. Well, I don't know. Nobody taught me how to be an entrepreneur. Well, that's something. Uh, I have no idea how to start a business. I said, that's shame on you and shame your education. Because look at your mother. Your mother, illiterate mother, who never crossed the boundary of your village, she took a loan 25 years back, it had the courage to do that, deal with an institution, which she never did before, and started business, $30 business. And started then, and very diligently she followed it up and paid the bank with the loan, with the interest, and took a second loan, third loan, fourth loan, it's continued. And that's where you're born. Now you're telling me you don't know how to start a business. Your illiterate mother knew about it. And not alone, nine million illiterate mothers knew, know about it. You don't know. What happened to you? Somebody just erased it, everything. So why don't you go back to your mother? Forget about your education. Start learning from your mother all over again and see what she had, what you're missing now. See, you can get it back again. So after all this, we finally tell the young people, look, you come up with business ideas, consult your mothers, how you start a business, what kind of business you can do. And once you figure it out, you can do that. Come with a business plan for us. We created a social business venture capital fund. So once you come, you like it, the business plan, we invest in your business. We become your partner. So this is not a loan, it's a partnership. We are a venture capitalist. We give you the money and make it successful. If you're successful, return the money that we gave you and be on your own. And we are not interested in your profit because we are a social business. A social business is a non-dividend company. It's a non-dividend company to solve problems. We are solving your problem. You're on the orbit. You go as fast as you go. So now thousands and thousands of young people come with business ideas to submit to us. We invested every month. So now it's accumulating and going. I said, if all these young people can do that, anybody anywhere in the world can do that. And I tried to explain, I said, if we put money on the table, everybody in the room will become entrepreneur. But the unfortunate thing, that money is not on the table. Our financial system is not supportive of that. They are supportive. The bigger you are, more money you get. And you have to pledge everything that you got. They have nothing to pledge. The only thing, they have a dream that they want to do a business and so on. So we create a different kind of financial system. That's the most important part of it. You mentioned about employment and uh, unemployment. I put it this way. I say the concept of unemployment, uh, sorry, concept of employment actually created the unemployment. If we didn't go through the employment route, we wouldn't have any unemployment because we will be all taking care of ourselves. And that's the power we bring from our history. We take care of ourselves. 
and we created, we would have created appropriate institutions for that. If we become like our young people that I was describing in Bangladesh, if you all become entrepreneurs like their mothers did and their other mothers did, if they all become entrepreneurs, there is no wealth concentration anymore. Why? Because they will be picking up their own wealth. If everybody is picking up their own wealth, it will not concentrate at one hand. And second thing is, the guy who concentrates all the wealth to his, in his hand because I work for him. If I didn't work for him, he wouldn't have this money. So we are the mercenaries, those who are working, they're just mercenaries to help him get the money. So uh, if we, all of us become entrepreneurs, no longer he has any mercenary left, so he cannot get the access to the wealth. So this is the scenario that I talk. Then comes the artificial intelligence. Then I was told in this trip uh, by the big uh, tech people, uh, artificial intelligence is ready to take away the garment industry. And Bangladesh is a country which depends on garment industry. This is 80% of our export is the garment to the world. We are the second largest garment exporter in the whole world after China. So the whole economy is based on that. If our garment industry is taken over by uh, artificial intelligence, they said we have designed a beautiful artificial intelligence just for the garment industry. We had some difficulty before, now we have overcome that, so it's, it's coming. I said, how long will it take? Oh, he said about five to 10 years, or maybe 15 years at the best to wipe out the whole thing. I said, um, what happens to us? You won't have, he said, you won't have any garment industry left. I said, where are they going to go? He said, in the backyard of a big company, because you don't need a big factory anymore. Mm -hmm. You produce what you need, you don't have to store anything. Just tell what you need the next week, they'll produce it, you'll have it in the, in the weekend, they will produce it, and from Monday you get it in the store because it's back at the store. So this is the garment industry happening. So what happens to employees of the workers of the government? There's a lot of job. And now I read in the newspaper today or yesterday that the, uh, Uber has signed a contract with NASA that in three cities in the USA, all their cars will be uh, driven uh, autonomously, meaning there'll be no driver. So they have signed the agreement and it will start early 2020. So only, 2018 and 19 in between. In two years or three years time, they will be on the road. And once they get into the Uber, there will be the trucks. All the trucks in the world will be driven by autonomously. So ultimately everything, so that's as long story short, everything will be taken over. I said, what would the human beings doing? And my answer is, well, human beings probably will be waiting in line for the welfare because they have no income. There's no job for them. So this is the kind of world that we see, we see. And I put another thing into it. I said, you know, I look at the pharmaceutical industry. They spend years and years developing a particular medicine to address a particular disease. It's a lots of research, lots of trial, and finally they had one medicine developed. They cannot go and start selling that medicine. Why? Because they're regulators. You have to now convince the regulator that this is not harmful in any way. Not only it will do the good job, but on the side or in any other way, it will not be harmful to the people. If you can prove that it is good, it doesn't have side effect, doesn't have harmful effect, only then government will give you license, approval to start selling it. I said, it doesn't happen to technology. Anybody can produce technology any way they want as if it's a free-for-all and destroy the whole people out of the, the 
put all the people out of job, nobody has a, anything to say. I said, there should be a regulatory board for them. So you develop it, your technology, come and explain to us what will happen. Prove that it will not harm anybody. Only we are convinced that no, it will not harm anybody. Only we'll give you that answer. That gatekeeper doesn't exist. That's, that is the most important thing we have to do now because otherwise we'll be finished the way scenario comes up. Scenario doesn't look good. Only thing good about what I'm saying that everybody is entrepreneur. If everybody is entrepreneur and, and um, artificial intelligence comes, what happens? Artificial intelligence will work for us because we are the entrepreneur. We're not the people. They cannot replace us because we are the entrepreneur. Maybe someday they will replace us as an entrepreneur too. <laughs> then we'll compete with them. <laughs> but for the time being, we'll hire them to work for us. Since everybody becomes entrepreneur, there's nobody to work for anybody. So artificial intelligence will be the one that will work for us and we'll make it happen. Um, let's, uh, before we go out to the audience, let me just ask you a couple of questions about the sustainable development goals, global goals. Um, um, one of my favorite goals, your favorite goal, is uh, goal number one, end of extreme poverty by 2030. Um, it already looks as though um, uh, we are not on track to achieve that goal, and one of the principal reasons is because there are, are a number of countries, often called fragile states, um, that are, are falling behind instead of moving forward. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on some of the things that you have worked on, how do we actually accelerate progress in the places where it's hardest, where the challenges are, are the most difficult and where are, we are likely to fail to meet the goals as a result? Uh, you, you're looking at the <clears throat> negative side of the poor, uh, um, soft side of the thing that's happening. I look at the exciting side of the thing, what's happening in the field of poverty reduction. Uh, first was the MDG, Millennium Development Goal. Number one goal was to reduce poverty by half by 2015. That was the goal that we have all promoted and see how it's given it done. And in Bangladesh, we are also trying to do that in, during that MDG period. And luckily, what happened in Bangladesh, we achieved that goal. That's an exciting thing. Not only we achieved it, Bangladesh is one of the poorest countries in the world with a heavy, heavy concentration of poverty in Bangladesh with a large number of people under poverty line. They came and achieved that goal of reducing poverty by half, not by 2015, by the middle of 2013, mm -hmm. two and a half years before that. So that's an exciting news that Bangladesh can do that, everybody else can do that. Bangladesh government is nothing, something, is not an ideal government of the world that they have done that. It's just a just run of the mill. So, so if under those kind of circumstances it can happen, there's a chance, there's a hope that it can be done in other circumstances too. Take the elements what help them. So, and several other countries have done that, achieved the Millennium Development Goal. We see the reduction in poverty in Bangladesh year by year. Uh, our reduction of poverty in the 90s, whole decade of 90s, on an average 1% per year. So we had 10% reduction in the period of 90s. In the first five years of uh, 2000 and 2005, reduction came to, on an average, 2% per year. In the next 5%, five five year is 2.5%. So even the reduction is getting speedier and speedier as we come closer and closer to reduction. 
even if you maintain the 2.5% reduction, if it doesn't go to 3% again the next five years, supposing it's 2.5%, even with the speed of 2.5% per five years, we achieve zero poverty before 2030. And today is 2017. We are on the track and we can achieve that zero poverty. So this is also as an example, as an inspiration that it can happen. We go inside of Bangladesh, find out what made it happen. What is it that happened in Bangladesh, other countries? It was not the role of the government. It's the role of the citizens. Free people, people wanted to do the things themselves, their own initiatives. Sometimes government came counter to that rather than be supportive of that. But it happened. Not only on the Millennium Development Goal, if you look at the health goals, Bangladesh has hit most of the health goals also. In Bangladesh, healthcare index today is, in, is the highest in the whole region. Of all eight countries that constitute SARC, Bangladesh health index is, is the highest in all eight countries. So something, and we were the most poor health care index in the entire region some 20 years back. In 20 years now we came at the top. So something is happening. So these are the things that we have to notice, we have to adopt, we have to see you can do better than that. So I will not give up just because another country didn't do it, we'll say maybe something wrong, they did it the wrong way. So if you can correct it, as, as you are not expecting government to play a very important role in it, if the citizens can play a role in it, it can happen. And if the government and citizens both work the same way, it will be faster. One more question and then we'll open up. Um, a, another challenge, you're right, I am focusing on the challenges. Um, is that one of the amazing things that happened with the Sustainable Development Goals was to recognize the inextricable nature of, of the development progress and climate goals. Um, one of, of course, the things that happens when people get better off is that they consume more. They consume more energy, water, meat, all of these sorts of things, cement, plastic, you name it. Um, and, and a lot of these things have a, a very negative impact on the climate. And so I want you to talk a little bit about a vision where we can continue to have the great gains in, in individual economic growth and therefore consumption that is also not inimical to, to having a planet that we can continue to live on. Uh, well, there are many aspects to your question, but one just focusing on uh, what we, how we are trying to address. You mentioned plastic, and one of our favorite topics is plastic. We just had a big conference in Paris on plastic. Uh, plastic is going to kill us the way it's going right now. It's piling up. Uh, I think I think we'll be under the grave uh, of plastics. Uh, uh, the current feature is uh, uh, eight million tons of plastic waste go into the ocean every year. So you have a huge ocean full of uh, plastic. You have a plastic ocean. Nothing but ocean in the plastic. And that's one scenario. They can take pictures of all the plastic floating. But the dangerous part of it, now these are deteriorating and getting into little particles. And fish think these are food because they look colorful. And they start eating. So, but they cannot digest. So the fish is, stomach is filled with plastics. And many animals, birds are dying because of the plastic in the, inside the stomach. But the fish which is surviving, we catch the fish. Our fishermen go and catch the fish with full of plastic inside the uh, stomach. And then 
we buy it and uh, consume it. And the plastic comes to our body too. So the plastic is in our food chain right now. And plastic is also in our water chain. Little microfibers are detected in the water supplies of big cities and so on. This is a big research coming out with the findings. And gradually, the presence of microfibers is increasing. So it's coming to our body. So if this plastic becomes bigger and bigger in quantity the way it is doing now, we are in trouble. Uh, our rivers are getting clogged, our canals are getting clogged, our landfills are uh, put in a strange situation that is piles of nothing but plastic. What we are doing, trying to see, this is a problem, so our immediate response is to come up with social business idea. So we are creating a project, a company in Vietnam, addressing the Mekong River. Mekong River is also getting clogged with the plastic. So we address the Mekong River. Our purpose of this company, the plastic company, is to clean up the Mekong River of plastic by recycling them. Recycling them in a way, uh, taking this plastic into making it long-lasting plastic materials, like, for example, building materials, so that you can build really houses with plastic. And I was joking with them, those who were doing it. I said, maybe we should ma make them into plastic Lego. No, you're like, oh, you may. So you build the house, put one Lego in another, build the house. And particularly, I said, it will be good for Bangladesh because when the flood comes, we have to dismantle the Lego and put it, put it, make it in a flat as a kind of a float so that we put everything on the float and go someplace safe because otherwise our house is gone. That's what happened. Every flood comes, our houses are gone. We have to construct again. I said, why don't we do a multi-purpose house? Sometimes it's a boat, sometimes it's a house, sometimes something else. It's a Lego fashion model, so we can do that. Joke apart, it's a possibility that how we can do that. All the furnitures can be made with plastics. But it's long-lasting plastic. It will not go, end up in the river. You keep it as long. And if it deteriorates, we again recycle it into something else. So that's the kind of initiative that we have taken. Hopefully we will be able to address that uh, problem as in a social business way, not to make money, but to solve the problem. So we can address many of the things. One, quickly I will mention, we have done it uh, 22 years back in Bangladesh. We created a company called Gramin Shokti or Gramin Energy to bring solar energy in the homes of Bangladeshi poor villages. In the beginning, it's very difficult to convince them that the solar home system and so on is expensive. But finally, we found a way, we gave them a message that this is how you have to pay. Whatever money you pay for your kerosene every month, just pay the money to us. You don't have to buy the kerosene. You pay, and we give you the electricity, solar home system. And this is, there's no harm, I can do that. And you do that for the next three years. Every month, you pay the same amount, kerosene money, to us and we give it. After three years, you don't have to pay to anybody. Our job is done, we got the money back, so you're on your own, you don't have to pay for kerosene, you don't have to pay for electricity, nothing. You got it. It made sense to them. Now we have nearly two million homes in Bangladesh with solar energy. So we replace fossil fuel with the solar energy. So ideas can come in many different ways. This is not the only one. There are thousand and one ways how to do that. And we, for rich people who are using materials or uh, lifestyle issues uh, where they use fossil fuel and create uh, lots of uh, ca carbon emission, uh, we have to come back and say, these are the one that consume so much uh, or eliminate so much carbon and so on. And encourage everybody to 
look at their lifestyle, who is contributing to this emission, so that they, they become aware, particularly young people become aware. Young people in school will be taught that my enjoyment of life should not take away the enjoyment of life anywhere in this planet. And then you start feeling how I live, what happens to somebody else in Bangladesh or in an island country, they get submerged, they, they lost everything, their country doesn't exist anymore because what you eat, what you do, what you enjoy. So if you relate that, then people, some people, not everybody right away, but some people say, no, 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 I don't want to do that. My lifestyle should not affect negatively on anybody else. I want to share this planet with them. So this has to come back in our consciousness that what I do, it harms somebody else. So can I restrain myself so that I don't harm, their children don't get into the ocean or their homes don't get into the ocean? Uh, their, their agriculture don't get destroyed. How I can do better? How do I, not only uh, the, the, the carbon emission, how do I create carbon offset? If I create forest, there's a carbon offset. Why don't you create forest? Wherever forest is today, the natural rule is for deforestation. Deforestation everywhere. Deforestation in Africa where the beautiful forests disappear. So we have to come back to that. So we have to deforest and so on. So the item by item, we have to say, and make sure that we can do something. And that's the message that the young people, businesses, and everybody should get. You can emit, if you're emitting carbon right away, you have to take action right away. You can't say it will take 30 years to do that. Carbon offset, you create carbon offset. There is a facility, there's a social business we are running. You create, with the money you give me, I'll create a social business, I'll run it. So we have to be active citizens, not just criticizing and then not do anything. Mm. I want to go out uh, first uh, to our audience here. Um, what I'm going to ask is uh, that you uh, raise your hand, identify yourself, um, and please very briefly ask a question or make a comment. Um, so um, just this woman in green here. Hi. Um, my name's Koei Noor. Hello. Um, my question is, um, well, regarding social enterprise, in the UK, I believe we call it social enterprise, and there's over 70,000 in this country alone. So I, I imagine there's hundreds of thousands around the world. Um, how do you feel governments can perpetuate a system, of, uh, a system to encourage social enterprises? How can they improve and create more? You'll notice that I have not used the word social enterprise. I always <laughs> use the word social business because I see there's a difference between the two. Uh, but that's good. It's not, that's because we didn't use, that doesn't mean it is something I disapprove. I don't disapprove. I said that's another way. Uh, in in the social enterprise, there are elements of charity uh, which we try to avoid. We want to skip the whole elements of charity. It could be just like social business that I'm talking about, non-dividend company, no, no profit at all. But it's not clear. Some NGOs do the thing as part of charity, part of income, and so on is a business, part business, part charity. So there's a mix of it, possibility. And sometimes they don't have mix, but only social business as a social, social enterprise, as a social business. Since it has some haziness about it, we try to avoid that. In social business, what we do, tell the government not to help us. This is a very, very strong message to the government. Please don't help us. With a very good reason. Uh, we have reasons why we say that. 
uh, we said that if you give us a tax benefit, if you give us charity money, grant money or something, if you give us uh, a special privileges about land, about facilities and so on, that will benefit us. Yes, that's true. But at the same time, it will encourage fake social business to get in. Money makers change the title of their business and fake it as a social business to catch the tax benefit, tax the special benefit and so on. I said I would rather suffer through the difficulty of running business along with everybody else and avoid those fake business to come in, uh, contamination of that. I will keep it the uh, sanctity of this, keep it clean so that I don't have disturbance on that. We tell the government to become cheerleaders without any money. Just say it's a good thing they are doing. That's all you say, nothing else. And we are fine with that. And if you want to, we tell them, if you want to start something as a social business, you design yourself. You have many charity activities. Government has many charity activities. Why don't you design a social business to address some of that? For example, you have a welfare system. You put in welfare, which is a wonderful thing you do. But can you create a social business fund for the welfare people? If anybody wants to start a business out of the welfare people, you will invest like we had the venture capital fund that I described in Bangladesh. So that you invest in their business. Make sure they are successful. When they are successful, they will return the money to your fund and they will not be on your neck for receiving this check again. So you have done one. Even if you have 100 or 200 cases like that, it will open up the whole gate that yes, people can do that. Even their children. Maybe older people say, okay, I'm used to it. Children, young people say, I'm not used to it. I want to start my business. If, if I can get the money from the investment fund, I will definitely come up with the business idea. Or my, my friends and together, three of us get together, we'll create our own business and if this money is available. So that would be a good thing, and that will be their experience also. This is one. Another thing, particularly for British government or the UK government, they have foreign aid. I said, many of the foreign aid is grant money. Some are business money, some are grant money. I said, why don't you use your money to a particular country that you gave grant money, create a social business fund there, and ask for competition. Come up with the design competition, how to address the health care of the women, health care of the children, or nutrition, and so on. Come up with a business idea, we'll invest in your business. We will give you the investment money, we'll become partner, this fund will become the partner, which will be local fund. It's not a UK fund. You give the money to the local fund. And it's a local fund. They will give the money. And money will come back and come back into the fund. It will be used again and again. In the meantime, you are generating ideas after ideas. You did one thing. I said, I can do better. I get another idea. So you're energizing many other young people to do such things. So these are the direction that I would rather invite them to do. Thank you. So we've got uh, a Actually, two people online asking pretty much the exact same question here. Uh, one is a, an anonymous student from the University of Edinburgh. I'm not sure why they don't want to. Uh, um, it's, uh, what do you think of the universal basic income? Uh, an idea that is gaining currency with some, but also sounds like it's a little bit at tension with some of the things no. you've talked about. Yeah, this is, this is in the same line as welfare. Because you don't earn enough, somebody has to top it up. That's a universal. Government has to chip in. You, you earn money someplace which is not enough for you, government tops it up. This is a universal guaranteed income. 
so I'm, I'm not in that path. I'm saying nobody should be in welfare to begin with. Welfare comes because the system is crooked. It's nothing wrong with the people. Simply, system didn't know how to deal with people who has no employment because you push them into employment. I said, I'm not pushing anybody to employment. I said, you become an entrepreneur. That's what you are. So I would say, you be an entrepreneur, earn enough. You don't have to be a beggar to beg for anybody. You have, be, you have to be on your own. This is the strength of the people. Human beings are equipped with all the, all the ability that they need to take care of themselves. They shouldn't be dependent on anybody else. Uh, that is, I think, diminishing the human being. I would rather enhancing the human being. I'll prop up the institutions, I'll prop up the facilities so that they can uh, go ahead and do their businesses and do more, more for their income and so on and so forth. Uh, I would go that route rather than go in the welfare route. Welfare route is a failure of the system. It's not the success of the system. So you're trying to do the patchwork. You do the welfare, you do this, you, someday another thing will happen because you can't cope with it because fundamentally it's wrong. You started with the wrong premises. So maybe instead of universal basic income, we should have universal basic borrowing limits for entrepreneurs. No, not necessarily borrowing. Why should there be limits? See, you use the word limits. Why should there be limit? If I can borrow and pay you back, why should there be limit? This is a business. It's not, you see, you come from the charity yard. Charity has the limit. Business doesn't have a limit. Business is wide open, limitless. So you, you do the business. When you give me the money, you lend me the money, that's your business. Whether it's a social business, whether it's a money-making business, it's a business. So you'd like to expand it, not limit it. So limit is the wrong idea. Borrowing so minimums, minimums. What I meant to say. Um, uh, let, let's, why don't we go, if you don't mind, maybe I'll ask two and, and gather Absolutely. a couple. Um, this but gentleman and okay, well, uh, <laughs> uh, th this gentleman and the woman right behind him. Why don't we start with them? Hi, good evening. Uh, I'm Zulfi Hussain. Uh, I'm very much an entrepreneur and philanthropist. I've just traveled of just over 200 miles to come and see you. I'm a great fan of your work. I've met some amazing people already here. Uh, very dynamic, like-minded, and I guess my comment or question to yourself is, what would be your call to action tonight for the people here? because I think we should all be going away with some sort of a responsibility of, of not just listening to your wise words, but actually acting on them. The woman behind him, and, and then I will remind you if you forget. Yeah. Uh, I'm Zaki Razvana, I'm a, a pediatrician. Um, I've got two um, very quick uh, questions. One is, um, uh, once we talk about the economic development, it, whether it's in household level or community level. What I feel is uh, no matter how economically developed you are, unless and until you, ha you have the social development, you, don't, you can't enjoy the fruit of the uh, economic development. Why I'm saying it? Because I worked in 80 villages in, in Tanga in Madhupur, and I've seen that, that the hospitals, all the, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, that the health indicators are improving. That's true. But when, when we have the um, health facilities, uh, the women, they, they didn't have the access to the health service, not because they didn't exist, but because of the social factors. So if you want to uh, um, say... The second, second thing is about the zero um, carbon emission. Uh, like Bhutan... Bhutan is totally carbon neutral. Not only neutral, they are carbon negative. If Bhutan can do that, why Bangladesh can't do it? Thank you very much. Two very different uh, questions. Uh, what is your call to action? Um, 
how do we think about women's access to yeah, health care? Go ahead. About the call to action would be um, like three zeros. That's the kind of uh, destination that we put out in front of us. This is where we have to go. See if it makes sense to you, the zero poverty, zero unemployment, zero net carbon emission. And pick up any one of them. See if you can do any, anything in the direction. Uh, and I have the toolbox, uh, I added a tool in your toolbox called social business. See if you can use the social business in that, in that way. And I gave some examples, quick examples in the discussion. I said, can we take five welfare people out of welfare? It's not a rocket science. If we spend another 10 minutes, we can have 100 designs for that as a business. And pick up one and implement it. If you have taken five welfare people out of welfare, you created history. And everybody will follow you. And nobody will be in welfare. So we have so many opportunities now. If you take five or three or two, just using a number, if you take five, Chronically unemployed pe young people. They have never found a job yet. They have tried many. Take them out. And either give them an employment in your business, what you create as a social business, just to, like I, I gave the case of former prisoners. They created a business to employ the former prisoners and run a beautiful restaurant. And you can do that. Anybody can do that. Or create an entrepreneur out of them. That's also a possibility. See, what you do, have a kind of competition among the unemployed young people. Who would like to become an entrepreneur? Thousands of them will probably participate. You pick five. Brilliant idea they have. And you put it as an as a, as a investment, not as a loan. Loan is a scary thing for them. Investment, I'm your partner. So let's work together. See if you can be successful. If out of the five, four are successful, you have done something. And the one which didn't succeed will try it again with them. This is it. So these are things, steps are very simple. And every social business that I talk about, I said, think about the biggest issue that you could get. But a small, start very, very small. Unemployment is a big issue. But start very small with two people. It can be done. So what happens to two people? You created the prototype. And that is the most important thing. Once you have successfully developed the prototype, all everybody else has to do is to repeat it. Nothing else. Or improve it. And on the way, people will come. But you are the one who opened it up. So we have a chance to make a history. Everywhere you can do, you can start something new with a very small size and make. So this is the appeal. So you can, even, even if you're not doing it, at least think in your mind how to design a business to take five unemployed people or five welfare people out of welfare. And you put it, post it in your Facebook or whatever account you have so that others say, hey, this is a good idea. I'd like to invest in it. You don't have to invest in it. You don't have to run it. You come up with just idea. That idea is so powerful. Social business, the core of the social business is creative idea, nothing else. You come with a creative idea, world will change. It will make it happen. And the other one about the problem of uh, social issues. And social issues, you have to deal with it. It's not a separate issue. Uh, just to give our experience and microcredit and so on, it's filled with problems. Because we are giving, first of all, problem was we are giving loan to women. Everybody protested. You can't give it. Even the husband in the family was opposed to it. 
He became the leader of the opposition. <laughs> he would not let it happen. He felt insulted. How can you do that? What does she know about money? I'm the one who controls money. So he said, okay, you control your money. We'll not disturb you. We'll give this money. You'll not be responsible for this. So we had to go through a lot. And the mullahs opposed it. They said, this is against Islam. You can't do that. You're destroying the religion. And all kinds of opposition. And that opposition has not ended. You have varieties of opposition of microcredit. You can keep hearing. Your ears will be full. But you keep on doing it. Because you believe in it, you know what you are doing. Continue it. That's the only way. And come with a creative way of addressing it. Not only were attacked, we came up with a counterattack. We never yielded to their attack. We just built a counterattack for them. Not building, accepting it. it we we uh, counterattacked the religious people. Mullahs confronted them. What is, what, where is your religion that it says? And we give examples. Very simple example. I'll share it with you. That they say this will destroy the religion. With a simple example that we give, you know, as a Muslim, we are supposed to follow the footsteps of the Prophet. Everybody agrees that we have to follow the footsteps of the Prophet. That's the best thing a Muslim can do. And as a young man, he, he took a job. First, his first job was under a woman. So if you want to be a good Muslim, you have to find a businesswoman to work for. <laughs> and Prophet married her. She's an elder person, older person than the prophet, younger person. He married her. I, then we said, look, this is history. So if you want to be good Muslim, if you want to follow the footsteps, you have to marry a businesswoman. <laughs> and if you can't find businesswomen in your neighborhood, we have plenty of them. <laughs> we'll introduce you to them. So they understood that. We, we didn't take it as easy. We said, then they cannot counter this because this everybody knows. So this is the way. You come up with your things and continue debating, discussing, and so on. Finally, they will see the point. And the other one, there is another point. One is social, another one? Carbon emission. Carbon emission, of course. But Bangladesh, economy is different. There is a very uh, non-industrialized economy. Industry is what? In a densely populated country. We create a lot of waste, for example. One is a plastic that I was talking about. Luckily, Bangladesh took a decision to ban plastic in, mar in uh, marketing and uh, bags and so on uh, for shopping. So shopping bags are banned. They, this is an important decision. Nobody else has done that, but Bangladesh has done that. This is a very positive thing they have done. Uh, being a very densely populated country, we create a lot of problems for ourselves like in consumption and waste creation and many other things. So it's not comparable. Bhutan, I respect what they are doing, but they are a lucky country in that sense. <laughs> uh, they didn't have to go through. But Bangladesh will overcome that because Bangladesh is a victim of global warming. So uh, we have our many problems that we see along, along the way, but we have to overcome that. Thank you. So we're, we're almost at the end of time, so I'm just going to take a couple more questions and you can answer or not answer what you want in the, in the time that we have uh, remaining. I'm just seeing, uh, we haven't gone to the back. This gentleman uh, in the back first, his hand held high. Hi, um, my name is William Mahorny. I'd like to come back to the suggestion that the gentleman in the front made. Um, and I've got a creative idea about call to action. Um, you haven't really spoken in any detail about the amount of money that would take uh, a woman or a family um, out of their present conditions into um, 
a, a viable solution. But I, I think all of us in this room, if, if I'm judging correctly what you've said, are in a position to go away this evening with a commitment uh, to make a microloan. Would that not be so? And is the, is the level, could you just elaborate a little bit on the, the level of a loan that would make a difference um, to a person in Bangladesh or elsewhere? In the U.S., for example, the loan size, entry point loan size is $1,500. So in the U.S., we have over 100,000 borrowers through uh, 20 branches, seven branches in New York, two in Los Angeles, two in San Francisco, and others in Omaha, Nebraska, Charlotte, North Carolina, and tw in 12 cities. Uh, and they have been expanding their business and so on. So if you're looking for that, this would be good size. To $1,500 if you want, really want to do that. In Bangladesh, startup loan would be something like $40. So that it depends on the country where the economy is and so on. If it, if it seems too scary, sorry, that, if it seems too scary to do it as, a, as an individual. The individual doesn't work. Uh, so it disappears. So, so you need to organize the effort for that. So if somebody sitting in this audience wants yeah. to take you up on the $1,500 sure. micro lending, what, what would you recommend they do? Who usually, would they go to? Usually Kiva does that. Still, I hope that they still do that. Kiva is very good, well-renowned. You can go through Kiva. They will select you where they want to give the money. So it's always available. But this is a standard thing you can do. But there are more concrete things, ideas, new ideas. That's a challenging thing. Giving $1,500 or $40 is easy. Write a check. I'm saying more than that. You use your head that you can create a business to solve the problem of one or the other, yeah, whatever's the problem. But if Great. you don't do anything, that isn't helpful. That's not. That, that's not acceptable. Right. And just the last question here to this woman. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, lovely to be here Good. because I'm your biggest fan. Good. I must say. <laughs> <laughs> I needed a friend. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but this is not a skeptical uh, no, no, comment. Go ahead, go ahead. This is more like a philosophical question, okay, which ahead, is yeah. coming to my mind because I, the way I see it, uh, this is the inequality is it's like a vicious circle because micro lending. Do you think it's going to ever catch up with the, say, for example, the bigger corporations? Because these um, micro-entrepreneurs, they are taking loan, giving it back, then taking loan again. So do you think they are ever going to catch up with the inequality vicious circle? Because by that time, the bigger corporations would be getting bigger and bigger. So. It, has it helped yeah. the world? No, just quickly. I didn't see any reason to catch up. Why catch up with the rich? All I need is a life with dignity, that's all. I don't have to have billions of dollars around me. That's the wrong objective of life. And I'm saying, why do you have those billions of dollars? That's the question I'm raising. It's not because of you, because of the system kind of brought this money at your feet. You didn't do it. System did it for you. I said, why don't you turn around the system so that everybody has the same opportunity to make it happen? It's the system fault. We are trying to correct one little thing, not the system. And the system is a fundamental thing. That's what we are raising this question, what the system should be. Unless you correct the system, it will produce the same result over and over again. You do the corrective methods here a little bit. Some we always talk about in the UN jargon or in the development jargon. Nobody should be left behind. This is a slogan we always use. Nobody should be left behind. And I kept telling that, well, that's very funny that you say that. 
because we built the system to leave everybody behind. How can you expect that nobody should be left behind? You have to change the system. Only then you can talk about nobody left behind. Now, as I said, all the wealth of the world is sucked up and transported above. That's the system. And you're saying nobody should be left behind. We already left them behind because we picked them up, sent it up. So we have to go to the fundamental issue. In the meantime, we do the corrective thing, microcredit and all this employment and so on and so forth. But the basic thing has to be redesigned. Yeah. Well, you have been incredibly generous with your time and thoughts with us tonight. Um, you call in the last page of your book for an outburst of hope. Um, and after spending decades with fantastic ideas born of famine and has gone on to change the lives of millions of people, uh, we really appreciate you coming here uh, to inspire uh, not only the next generation, but all of us sitting here uh, today of whatever um, age and background to be able to do more uh, for the causes that you promote. So thank you so thank much. You Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.